This afternoon, brothers and sisters, I may proclaim to you the word of our God as we confess it together in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 7, which begins on page 523 of your book of praise. There the church learns to echo God's word in this way. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And there follows the 12 articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, which we've together just confessed. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response, Psalm 40, stanza 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you saved? The question is not really foreign to us. We've either been asked that question or asked it of ourselves. It's a good question. In fact, it's a question raised by our Lord's Day this afternoon. In the previous Lord's Day, there was this shout of jubilation that God has given to us a mediator, Jesus Christ, for our complete redemption. There was also this spirited confession that God has told us all about this mediator in the Holy Gospel. But there is a vital question remaining, one that logically flows from all of this. Does everyone benefit from the saving work of the mediator? <clears throat> Are all men saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? If the answer is yes, then without question, I am guaranteed eternal life. Yet if the answer is no, not all are saved, then I need to face the question, am I saved? How do I know I'm saved? And so our Lord's Day starts off with a bang and asks, for whom exactly did the mediator, Jesus Christ, die and rise again? Scripture is very clear. <clears throat> not all are saved. There are two roads in this life. The one is broad and leads to destruction, and the other is narrow and leads to, leads to life. And so our catechism says this afternoon that, there are, that only those are saved who by a true faith share in Christ. 
This is the answer to the pressing question, are you saved? We don't confess here, notice, only the elect are saved. Instead, we speak of faith. Our confession looks at salvation, in a sense, not from God's perspective, but from ours. Oh yeah, faith is the work, the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, but that work is visible. The emphasis here is on faith as our activity. And that's because in our daily life, we may never use the doctrine of election to downplay the importance of faith. Yes, to trivialize our responsibility to believe. In Lord's Day 7, we confess the responsibility to believe in Christ. And so to deal with the question, are you saved? I proclaim to you the word of God in this way. Salvation is only for those who have a true faith in Christ. We'll see the function of faith, its features, as well as its focus in the third place. So first, we see the function of faith. From what we confess and from our theme this afternoon, it's clear that Christ's work of salvation is limited. It's for a select number of people. Historically, we've called this the doctrine of limited atonement. It's how we explain Christ's work on the cross. Uh, Many respond to this confession, this explanation with indignation. In particular, Arminians forcefully object to this doctrine. Those of a broadly evangelical background, such as Baptists and Pentecostals, accuse the Reformed of limiting what the Lord Jesus accomplished at Calvary. And in all likelihood, if you have discussions with them on this, they will point to a passage like Romans 5, verse 18. As through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. They may also refer to 1 John 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins and for not, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So if Adam dragged all men without exception down with him in the fall, then did not the second Adam lift up all men without exception out of that fall? So instead of limited atonement, They say we should rather speak of universal atonement. The irony in all of this is that Calvinists and Arminians alike limit the atonement. We limit its scope, its focus. Arminians limit its strength. Calvinists believe the atoning work of Christ was limited to the elect. His atonement secured everything the elect sinner needs in order to be made right with God. Regeneration, faith, repentance, etc. 
Arminians, however, believe that Christ's work on the cross was not meant to secure a specific people for himself or salvation for any one sinner. Christ's death, they say, did not pay the penalty for anybody's sins. Instead, he suffered for us and his death was meant to make possible salvation for any person who of his own free will would in turn believe. There is not enough time, unfortunately, this afternoon for us here to study all those passages that are summoned to support the Arminian teaching. Nevertheless, there are some helpful principles we ought to mention in response to the idea of universal atonement. One, the passages that Arminians use include at least one of the words, all, whole, whole world. And they interpret these to mean every single last person. But is that how these universal words function? If you'll excuse me for being somewhat tedious for a moment. For example, does all mean all, all the time? It constantly happens that people use universal terms and are not referring to a universal fact. We say all when we don't mean all. The Bible does it too. Luke 2 verse 1 is one example. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now either this is figurative language or the Bible is dead wrong. Did Puerto Ricans get registered? What about the Kiwis in New Zealand? Now, Luke's point here is that the whole Roman world should be registered. What about Colossians 1 verse 6? There the apostle declares that by mid-first century, the gospel has come to you as it has also in all the world. <clears throat> is he saying that the gospel has made its way to Australia? No, obviously not. You know, we say all, all the time when we don't actually mean it. No, we don't. You don't say all, all the time. You're not speaking right now. Sometimes maybe some of you speak Dutch. And for that matter, when you do talk, you sometimes say other things. So we don't say all, all the time. It's the same in the scriptures. The point here is we have to, as readers of scripture, recognize figures of speech when we see them. We have to bow the knee to the language of scripture. That's one principle fundamental principle to keep in mind. Here's another. What we have just said does not mean that the words all, whole, whole world in the Bible may never be taken to mean every single person or thing. Sometimes they can. How do you determine that? Well then by observing another principle, the principle of context. When was something written? To whom was it written? And what does the text really say? Here we can think, for example, of the passage most often quoted to prove universal atonement. 
It's also the most well-known and loved and quoted verse in the whole world. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We cannot miss whom the Lord Jesus was addressing here as is often the case with Arminians. The Lord Jesus was addressing a culture so focused on race. The Jews had this idea that the Messiah was going to come and be a Messiah of and for the Jews. It was the most absurd thought to a Jew that their Messiah was going to come and pay also for the sins of an Ethiopian, a Roman, African, Canadian. The Lord Jesus in John 3, if you read there, has to correct the understanding of Nicodemus and the Jews and tell them that the Messiah was going to pay for the sins of all the elect of Israel, but also for the sins of people from so many other nations in the world. This we call the historical context of John 3. And the very immediate context is is a further clue that the Lord Jesus isn't teaching universal atonement. Only two verses after John 3.16, there is a serious call to faith and warning against unbelief. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The love of God in Christ is not given to just anyone. It's by faith alone that one receives God's love and grace. We could go on, but I think it becomes very clear, congregation, that there is no such thing as automatic participation in Christ's salvation. And it's not because there is any insufficiency of merit and grace in Christ. It arises from who we are by nature. By nature, we are all in Adam, children of unbelief. It's only by faith, Scripture says, that one is connected to Christ. The Catechism also says this, that only by faith can we have a relationship with Christ. We think then for a moment of what we read together in John 15, which talks about the importance of the connection of a leaf or branch to the rest of the vine. On its own, we understand, well, a leaf or branch can't survive. It's not going to flourish. The Lord Jesus makes clear what happens when it's separated from the vine. Verse 6, cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. A disconnected branch or leaf is no good. The only way for it to grow and thrive is when it's attached to a vine. That's when it receives the necessary water and nutrients. A branch grows leaves, bears fruit. It remains connected to the vine, and the gardener tends to it with great care. 
Well, the Lord Jesus used this imagery to teach us about true faith. <clears throat> he is the true vine, and believers are those branches connected to him and bearing good fruit. Without the vine, without Christ or any kind of connection to him, we have no life, we can accept no nutrients, no benefits, and therefore can bear no fruit. Brothers and sisters, do you see the function of true faith? Faith alone connects us to Christ and all his benefits. Faith alone gives you and me fellowship in his suffering, his death, as well as in his joy and glory as he defeated death. So someone's membership in the church of Christ or even membership in the covenant does not mean that he or she is saved. It's not even by being a part of a Christian home that any of us is saved. We need to see the emphasis of our catechism, yes, of God's word, on the function of faith. Faith alone makes us share in Christ. No faith, no salvation. Faith, salvation for there is oneness with a life-giving vine. <clears throat> Beloved, there is salvation, there is a mediator, but there is also a call to faith in order to receive true life. Faith that drives a wedge into humanity united in sin. Blessed is the one who by faith knows he's connected to the true vine, who has become one plant with him. All of this then makes the next question one of supreme importance. What is true faith? And that takes us to our second point where we see the features of faith. <clears throat> it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, the word choice in Question 21, <clears throat> what is true faith? This question supposes the existence of another kind of faith. True stands opposed to false. And so there is such thing as a false faith. What might that refer to? People of different religions, Muslims, Hindus. Now that would be taking the easy way out but the catechism is actually more daring here. Given how it's about to answer the question, the catechism is implying that we may not consider people of different theological stripes as all having a true faith. The catechism does not leave any room for us to describe others' faith as having more or less insight into God's word being more or less enlightened or believing some but not all teachings of the Bible. Yes, what emerges here is that there is no wiggle room for us to speak of someone having a true or less true faith. The implied contrast is between a true and a false faith. For without true faith, without a true connection to the vine, we have no part in salvation. 
Well, the Catechism says that the features are, of faith are twofold. Sure knowledge, firm confidence. First of all, a sure knowledge. Believing is knowing. True faith never says, I do not know it, but I believe it. <clears throat> Rather, I believe, and therefore I know. <clears throat> know what? The ground of faith knowledge, says the Catechism, <clears throat> is all that God has revealed in his word. For all God says is true, but every man a liar. Faith works through the word. And thus the Lord Jesus has, our Lord God, has attached such immense weight and value to the preaching. And we encountered that in our reading in Romans 10. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul speaks very candidly to his Jewish brothers and sisters. He was grieved that many of them had not accepted the promised Messiah, for they had had so many opportunities to do so. They had heard the message. Paul says in, 10, in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. They didn't combine the message with faith. Paul does not want his Gentile readers to fall into the same trap. Faith comes by hearing. That has significant consequence for us. As Paul asks a moment earlier in verse 14, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? <clears throat> How can you and I believe if we won't lend our ears to the word and know our God? Eternal life, the Lord Jesus once said, is knowing the only true God. <coughs> so faith proceeds from knowing the truth of God's word and that knowledge is a personal thing. Each of us is called to a personal flesh and blood communion with the truth of God. You make his word your own. You come to know that all God's promises and threats come true and are true. The mind enlightened by God feeds off his revelation and it knows. While the darkened intellect of unbelief can only grope and fumble. Stand fast, fast in the faith, to grow in the faith, the word has to be an open book for us. And the mind has to be chewing on its truths every day. Yes, beloved, this accepting as true all that God has revealed in his word is not as simple as it may sound. Especially not when we confess we are to accept all that God has revealed to us. There's no easy way around that. Here we give no hearing to the confession, as long as I know I'm washed in the blood of Christ, that will do. I may select somewhat what I need to believe. Faith, for many, is not a matter of accepting all that God has revealed as true. As long as you believe the essentials, you're fine. For ultimately, faith is really a matter of how you feel about the Lord Jesus and about your salvation. Now that might not apply to us. Still, 
our confession is not as simple as it sounds. For it may not cost us much effort to accept that our God created the heavens and the earth. It's one thing for us to accept those things which are more or less outside of us, but when it affects us, when it might cost us something, we may buck at that. I'm also called to accept as true that I must love my neighbor as myself, pray for those who persecute me, be the least rather than always wanting to have the last word, have it my way. Faith strives to accept the whole word of God. Faith trembles before the word of God, whether that word is pleasant or convicting. We are to believe the whole word when it comforts as well as when it pinches. Faith professes to be bound to everything God has revealed in his word. And then along with knowledge, faith is also a matter of true, of firm confidence. <clears throat> we see again how personal the catechism is. Faith is always a very personal relationship between God and man, as we confess. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. When the believer reads the Bible, he continually hears himself addressed. The believer not only knows what God has told him, he's also confident in it. He may be led to mistrust or distrust humanity, but never his God. Faith takes stock of all that God decides and accomplishes, and he considers it all good. We can, in faith, know God's word and know that it is true for us. Well, congregation, for our faith to be true and not false, both features need to be there. Sure knowledge, firm confidence. And no, that's not to say that true faith never faces pressure or attack. It does. Sometimes we may temporarily have a stronger emphasis on the one than the other. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden have a false faith. The point is, we may not stress the one over the other. False faith brings them apart. We already mentioned how it just won't do to not have, or to emphasize rather, a firm confidence. It's the same with trumpeting a sure knowledge. When faith becomes only about digesting all the details of doctrine, then the heart is out of it. Knowledge alone is not power. Knowing much and holding as true everything found in the Bible is on its own cold and empty. It disputes and it debates, but it never proclaims and declares. It's not gonna connect you, build you up in Christ. We need to be on guard against either extreme 
of limiting faith to really either the head or the heart. Faith is this precious combination where your knowledge of God is extensive or growing evermore and your confidence in your salvation is exuberant, growing evermore that way. The head knows, the heart cherishes all, that they, all things that pertain to God and godliness. Now, the one actually serves the other. <clears throat> pure doctrine produces pure delight. True faith, it's the growing union of the intellect and the emotion. So let us be aware of false faith and its threat to take us over. Sometimes we are especially joyful in Christ. It might be when he blesses us in very visible ways, such as when we're growing in his word, faithful in our devotions. Our faith may really flourish at times, and it's supposed to. And yet that might be followed up with a period when we are rather lukewarm, <clears throat> perhaps of busy because of busy schedules, tensions in the home, etc. Recall our confession. Fire up your confidence, your zeal, through knowledge, study. <clears throat> or maybe it's the case that you love to talk about scripture and church life, but only for the sake of having a good time, having a good yarn about it. The word may not move you much at times. Again, I say, recall our confession. If there is knowledge, pray that it might inspire joy in you. Knowing the gospel pushes us to embracing it in our daily life. Knowledge drives us to confess, to work. Let's be on the lookout. <clears throat> Let's be on the lookout for false faith. For without true faith, salvation is not available. Well then how is it with your faith? Does it contain both? Is it solidly grounded? Is your knowledge concerned with the things of this life or with the eternal word of God? Is your confidence in the gods of this earth or in the God of heaven and earth? Is there reason to speak of a true faith or a faltering false faith. Without true faith, we cannot be saved, beloved. And so we come now to our final point where we see the focus of faith. Brothers and sisters, if this is what faith is like, what does faith believe? We've confessed that our knowledge is an acceptance of all that God has revealed to us in his word. <clears throat> a Christian must believe all that God has revealed. What exactly has, then has God said? Question 22, what then must a Christian believe, we say? The answer, all that is promised in the gospel. Now when we confess that, <clears throat> We are not being restrictive here. We're actually being descriptive. The gospel is not restricted to certain parts or aspects of scripture, but it describes the whole of scripture. All of scripture is gospel, good news. 
What God has revealed to us is revealed as gospel first and foremost. And that's even the case when God's word announces his warnings and judgments. Hosea 6 verse 5, we find a remarkable word of the Lord. First, he says, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Then he says, and my judgment goes forth as the light. So even when our God threatens, it's still a call for repentance. God has no delight in the death of the sinner. So with our confession, the whole of God's word is meant in its character of being the gospel from God and the promise from God. So we must believe all that is promised us in the gospel. That's the focus of our faith. And so what do we do then with what we read in Romans 10 verse 9? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. It's a text sadly so often misused. It's not as simple a thing as we might be led to believe. Many claim belief in the Lord Jesus, yet their life shows nothing for it. If Jesus is truly Lord of your life, what does that mean? He's your master. You are his servant. And you show your love for him, your devotion to him by obeying what he commands. John 14, verse 15. So confessing the Lord Jesus, believing all that is promised us in the gospel involves nothing less. Believing all that is promised us, brothers and sisters, what does that truly look like? Ultimately, it's the promise that God will be God for his people. It's the basic promise throughout scripture. In that promise, all others are included. And that's really then the direction our catechism takes in answer 22. After confessing that we must believe all that is promised us in the gospel, it carries on. Which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. And when we look at that Apostles' Creed as a summary of all that God has promised, what do we see as the contents of its summary? None other than God himself. The summary of God's promising word to us speaks of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Gospel, the triune God promises himself, gives of himself, to his people in his threefold work towards us. I will be your God. And so it's clear to us why the catechism says we must believe all that is promised in the gospel. Faith, beloved, is listening to the word spoken by God and accepting that word as trustworthy. God's promise requires acceptance in faith. God does not want us to consider this giving of himself to us as something automatic. He fulfills his promise in the way of true faith. 
And so our confession, the Apostles' Creed, is the response of faith of God's believing people. In his word, he speaks to his people and says, as triune God, I give myself to you. And I want you to believe that this is true for you. And our fitting, our proper response, belief and confess. And so, brothers and sisters, are you saved? If salvation is only for those who have a true faith in Christ, let us confess Christ. Let us confess God as our God. God's word of promise about himself is our deep and rich treasure. Let it be our heart's desire to believe and confess all of it with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Because our God himself, in the very first place, before you ever speak of any of his benefits, our God himself is our treasure. Let's carry on listening to him, knowing him, loving him, being confident of his promises to us, and bearing much fruit for his praise. <clears throat> Only then, by clinging to the gospel of promise in true faith, May you have everlasting life. Amen.